0: Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview.
1: I'm going to ask you a couple of standard questions, okay? Have you or any member of your family ever been diagnosed schizophrenic, mentally incompetent? My uncle thought he was St. Jerome. I'd call that a big yes.
0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten, recording from my apologetics studio at the Duke Farm out on the Old Mill Road. And I'm joined by Chad Gross, who's recording from the back room at the Boar's Nest. How's it going, Chad? I mean, again, it's kind of noisy in here, but I did...
1: <laughs> I I was able to bribe everybody with a pint. And once again, they're being quiet, and hopefully there won't be any fights in here.
0: All right. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, listeners. Hope you got your ears on. All right. Well, guess what, Chad? We're coming up on two years since the Apologetics 315 podcast reboot, which is hard to believe. Yes, it is. It's flown by, but it's been great. November 30th, 2020 is when we recorded our first reboot episode, so time's flying. And that was a, wasn't that, I was telling my wife earlier, wasn't that a catching up with Brian Otten kind of episode? Yep. It turned into us talking and then you asking me tons of questions and then it turned into catching up with me. So uh, on that note, today we're going to catch up with Chad Gross or at least find the superhero origin story. (laughs) Have you been reading what I've been reading this week, Chad? I have in preparation for an upcoming
1: interview. I've been reading uh, Counterfeit Kingdom. By Doug Guyvett and Holly Pivick. And Mm -hmm. uh, wow, this was eye-opening. Yeah, I'm about almost halfway through the book, and I knew that the New Apostolic Reformation had some problems. And uh, from our prior interview with Doug and Holly, I knew that there were a lot of scriptural issues there and that. I had a lot of different views from them, and they have views that I would consider an error. But I had no idea how far some of their views went in certain circles, and uh, and as a result of reading the book, I actually found a debate with Holly and Doug and Michael Brown on the Elisa Childers show podcast. And wow, was it ever eye opening! Doctor Brown, who I generally like on a lot of topics, especially uh, reaching out to Jewish people. And I know that I've watched a number of his debates on various topics and found them profitable. And I think he writes on cultural issues sometimes very well. But wow, this this was very eye opening to me. He was trying to argue that the new apostolic reformation didn't even exist, that it wasn't even a thing. Uh, it it was it was so odd to hear somebody who I consider to be very reasonable, very informed, typically, to be almost in denial. But so far the book is well documented. It's very troubling, and but I appreciate the way that Holly and Doug approach it as trying to inform, trying to gently correct. And guide toward truth, and trying to discover the principles that all Christians should be united on, and and so I, I have so far enjoyed it. And uh, anybody who may be listening, we have a couple podcasts now on the New Apostolic Reformation. One of them is our interview with Doug and Holly. The other being one where Brian actually gave a lot of his background and experience with what I came to learn was Nar, as it's also called. So you can check into those. But I I also recommend that book, Counterfeit Kingdom by Guyvett and Pivik. And uh, also looking up the discussion on the uh, Elisa Childers show with Doug and Holly and Michael Brown. How about you? What do you think of the book so far?
0: Uh, Yeah, I really like this book. You know, as whereas their first book that we uh, talked about and read had to do more about the doctrine of apostles and prophets today within the new apostolic reformation movement and how they derive that or try to get that from scripture and how it sort of twists things this one seems to be more about the movement and a lot of its problematic teachings it doesn't focus just on well apostles and prophets well it's talking about where well, there's a lot of false premises in their thinking right a lot of extremes When you take a certain questionable belief and then you really push it to its logical ends, you get some really crazy outcomes. Yeah, uh, I think every pastor should have this book to keep themselves aware of the influences that can be running around within their congregation. People are influenced by the new apostolic reformation in ways that they don't realize through books they read, worship Mm. music, or prayer meetings they might go to, and Things are taught that sound exciting and new and, you know, revved up and full of revival. There's just a lot of danger of having zeal without wisdom. And it seems like so much of what you see going on in the book is having zeal without wisdom and things getting really off the rails. So, yeah, highly recommend this uh, book, Counterfeit Kingdom. It'll open your eyes to the dangers of new revelation, new prophets and new age practices in the church. Mm. And um We'll talk about it next week with our interview with Doug and Holly, but looking forward to it because a lot of good info there. The point you brought
1: out there, too, I thought was a good one, was people should try to be informed about this movement, if anything else, for the reason that we can be influenced by it without even knowing it. So, mm-hmm. for example, the the teachings and the influences of NAR or the New Apostolic Reformation don't always come with the label NAR, So the teachings can creep in and people can be influenced by them, whether it be through what they're reading, what they're listening to, what they're watching without even knowing it. And so it's good to kind of have a foundation as to what it is so that you can kind of spot the counterfeit.
0: Yeah, there's one chapter in there that I was glad to see called is chapter seven, the passionately wrong Bible an overview and uh, expose on uh, what you know, how did that uh, quote unquote. Passion Translation. How did that come about? What does this guy believe? What's what has he changed? Here's some compared scriptures, because it's basically sort of a, a way to <laughs> retranslate the scripture in order to accommodate these teachings of the NIR movement and uh, kind of crazy. And you know, what's interesting about what you just brought up is in that discussion that I mentioned on The children's
1: Show, The children's mm-hmm. Podcast, Doug and Holly brought up how uh, I think it
0: was Brian Simmons is the guy who translated the passion yeah. translation. I think he's okay when it comes to his workouts and stuff, but translating the Bible is not, <laughs> not the way to go. <laughs> right. He
1: should stick with the workouts. I agree hundred yeah. percent. So one of the things that Doug brought up in the discussion, uh, Doug Guy, was how Simmons claims that Jesus appeared to him and basically helped him translate, come up with this translation. <laughs> yeah, And dude. to me, to me, that was, that was shocking. And Guyvitt brought that up to Brown. And you would think that somebody of Michael Brown's caliber would have been very troubled by that, but he did not seem the least worried about that. And I just was, my jaw was on the floor. I could not understand how Michael Brown just was not troubled by that at all. I thought that was at least one thing that all three
0: of them could have said, yeah, that's problematic. Here's a quote from the Apostle Brian Simmons, author of the Passion Translation. Here's the quote, okay? Jesus Christ came into my room. He breathed on me, and he commissioned me, and he spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you to translate the Bible into the translation project that I'm giving you to do.
1: Whoa.
0: So uh, I'm commissioning you to translate the Bible into the translation project that I'm giving you to do. That doesn't even make any sense. Oh
1: yeah, it was very strange, especially when Guyvet was pointing out a few places where the translation lacked uh, precision. And was clearly translated in favor, as you mentioned a little bit prior, was clearly translated in favor of, you know, the, the NAR view and Brown just didn't seem troubled at all. And his, his lack of, his lack of objectivity, just, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we all have blind spots, especially when we're personally vested in something. And uh, so anyway. Very interesting. And I'm looking forward to talking with Doug and Holly about that book. And I know that our last discussion was especially profitable, Mm -hmm. which will be
0: in the show notes. So, Chad, what age were you when you became a Christian? So I was 25 when I became a Christian. And so were you raised in a Christian home or did you go to church at all? What were your influences? Yeah, I was not
1: raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a home where we did attend church occasionally. Uh, most often it was we attended church on Easter and Christmas, and that was often to uh, keep grandma happy because that mm-hmm. was important to her. I think there was a general belief in God and, and sometimes a, a reference to God, but um, you know there wasn't any belief in you know, coming to know Christ and having a relationship with him or
0: praying over meals or, or anything like that. So if you think about what your personal beliefs were back then, if someone were to ask you about God or does God exist, what do you think your answer would have been? Uh, That's, that's a question I've thought, thought a good bit about. I, I think that a few
1: ways I would express what my beliefs about God were back then. I think one, it would have depended on the person that I was talking to. Uh, My conviction wasn't such that I would have felt the need to come down hard on the question. I think if I would have been talking to people who believed in God, I would have been fine with that. If I would have been talking to people who didn't, I would have been fine with that as well. And I probably just would have went with whatever kind of the flavor of the conversation was and didn't really have a conviction about it one way or the other. I think that when push came to shove, I did believe in something beyond myself. But if you would have asked me, who is God? I think it would have been a very generic definition of, well, you know, we're obviously here because of God. But how all that cashed out, I really don't know. There was no real thinking about God unless I would find myself in a tight situation. Uh, mm-hmm. whether that was in, with a relationship or whether it was getting pulled over uh <laughs> you know for speeding or maybe a big test that I had to do well on I mm-hmm. always kind of threw mm-hmm. up a prayer as a hail mary pass if you will not in the catholic sense but in the football sense I always threw up a prayer in and my attitude was well if he's there he'll maybe help me and if he's not then I'm no I'm no worse for wear. And so but I, I think that when it came down to it, in the in the quietness of my own in my own heart and in my own mind, I, I think I always had a belief of something beyond myself. I just don't know if I could have defined it.
0: So at what point do you think that started to change? Was it a slow ramp up to that or was it something definitive that brought you to consider Christianity?
1: It was kind of accumulation of things, as it probably often is. When I was in my early 20s, I became a teacher, an elementary school teacher. I was single. I shared an apartment with a roommate, and I had enough money to do what a young single guy wanted to do. Uh, I certainly wasn't rich being a teacher, but it seemed like I was to me, if that makes sense. And uh, I... Went out on dates and was in various relationships with girls and I had a nice car and I kind—I had all the things that most people my age would have considered to be, hey, this is this is what life's all about. I think what kind of snowballed things for me were I was in a relationship with a, uh, a girl when I was, I don't know, 21, 22, somewhere around there who I really did care about. And uh, things didn't work out there, and that got me thinking more about the meaning of life. I I started reading uh, self-help books, which up until then, I only read comic books. Uh, I started reading self-help books and looking for answers, and I started falling into kind of depression, anxiety. I started seeing a uh, counselor, and I had this friend that would always, whenever I would see him at teacher, uh, professional developments, he would always invite me to church. And in my head, I always kind of labeled him church boy. And I always knew he was going to come over and invite me to church. I always knew I would say, oh yeah, sure. I'll go sometime. And I had no intention of going well, he persisted. And one time when he asked me and I was feeling especially low, I thought, well, I might as well, might as well give this a whirl, right? What else do I have to lose? I'm already as low as feeling as low as I possibly can. So I went to church and the pastor that I heard did a few things that really struck me. Whenever I had gone to church growing up, the pastor always seemed kind of otherworldly, kind of above me and uh, bestowing his wisdom upon us all. and, And this pastor seemed like a regular gentleman who was sincerely living out what he believed. He talked about Jesus like he knew Jesus, and that shocked me and bewildered me and, inter- and I found very interesting all at the same time. But then he also said something along the lines of, there have been people in the past who have tried to demonstrate that Christianity is false, and they've become Christians. And he encouraged people to look into the evidence. Well, that shocked me because I had always looked at religion especially in college if you would have asked me I would have looked at it as is kind of like ice cream flavors you know you prefer vanilla the other person prefers chocolate somebody else likes uh, strawberry but hey this person Christianity works for them this person Hinduism works for them Buddhism works for them that's how I always viewed it one wasn't right and one wasn't wrong it was just whatever you preferred they were all kind of teaching the same kind of things now of course that was with no critical evaluation of what they really believed. So when this pastor mentioned evidence, I would stay after and talk to him about some of my questions. He directed me to resources. Some of the resources that he directed me to, I remember were Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and also Lee Strobel's work. And at this point, I think Strobel had only come out with the case for Christ and the case for faith. And obviously it wasn't so much Strobel's work that, was as convincing to me, but it was some of the people that he interviewed like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig and, and directed me to those people. So I started listening to debates and I just got to the point after and and I don't remember the time span real well, but I know that after considering arguments and, and counter arguments, I know that particularly the arguments for the resurrection And the uh, reliability of the New Testament were quite convincing to me. And I remember sitting at home at my house one night all by myself. Well, I had my dog with me, but other than that, I was by myself. And I remember it just hit me like a ton of bricks, like this really happened. Like this, Mm -hmm. this really happened. And so I gave my life to Christ and I started going to church, talking to people about the evidence for the new Testament and, and the evidence for the resurrection. Cause I just assumed they were as excited about it as I was. And it kind of shocked me that they were more like, I'm glad you find that interesting. And mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. but you don't. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I became a Christian. And, and I will say, I will say that when the pastor preached from the Bible, The teaching from the Bible did have a ring of truth, and it seemed to correspond with the reality that I was finding myself in. What I mean by that is is how I interacted with other people, how I felt about myself, how I did want to live a good life, but I didn't find it within me, the ability to do that. And all of these things combined, I can't say, like some people do, that my conversion was solely intellectual. I, I can't say that. But I also mm-hmm. can't say that I also can't say that it was solely experiential. It was definitely a combination of both. And for mm-hmm. me to to put a to try to say, oh, it was more intellectual than emotional or vice versa. It it, it was a gelling of both
0: and, and how to parse that out. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I can't help but it compare my own personal experience with yours and how sure uh, like uh, where apologetics plays a role. I feel like. In my experience, my environment sort of uh, made me think, well, uh, yeah, this is Christianity's true. And then only later when challenged did apologetics come into it in a big way to verify that. And then, but in your experience, it seems like your environment sort of created your worldview of like, eh, maybe whatever, you know, maybe this is true. Maybe maybe that's take it or leave it. But then you came mm-hmm. to a point where I'm finding out what objective reality is about here. And I've, I've latched onto it. And then, as you say, it's not solely intellectual, but, you know, God has definitely used those aspects where the truth claims are right at the forefront in your, you know, commitment to Christ at, at the outset. Right. Whereas it was sort of like just background belief I already had for me, uh, you know. And only later evaluating truth claims. I, th- I think I just wanted to draw that out for maybe the people who are listening to see that uh, when it comes to say apologetics or the how, and the role that plays in our lives, it can play a lot of different roles for strengthening faith, for bringing people to faith, and how it can be pre-evangelism. You know, it's a tool mm-hmm. for that, but it's a tool for bolstering our own faith. Uh, that leads me to sort of the next question, and that is. You gave your life to Christ and you started going to church and uh, talking about the evidence. Now, at the time, were you thinking, oh, this is apologetics? Or were you thinking this is just the nature of Christianity and I'm excited about all the evidence for Christianity? I mean, how, how would you put that? I don't even know at that point
1: in time. I don't know if I knew the word apologetics. Uh, mm hmm. That, that, I mean, I, I know i had heard it and i had come across it, but I, I wasn't really thinking I was reading apologetics. I was yeah, yeah. Just trying to trying to look at evidence. So, no, when I went to church and began sharing kind of my story and fellowshipping with other believers and going to prayer meetings and, and fellowship events and that lend themselves to conversations, I just thought this was Christianity. Like mm-hmm. I thought Christians were would all. Be aware of these evidences. I thought that they would, uh, to me, in my mind, it just seemed you guys are going out into the world and you're telling some, you're telling people that there was a guy who genuinely died and he came back to life. And when everybody else they know that dies stays dead. And so to me, it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world that everybody would be aware of this so that when they shared it with other people, they'd be yeah. able to say, Hey, here, here's some kind of historical reasons you can actually believe this. Because I remember being a little, I don't know if this is the right word, but I'm going to use it. I remember being a little indignant that I thought to myself, I remember thinking, how did I get to be, you know, in my mid twenties almost here and nobody ever said to me, there's actually evidence for this stuff. I remember almost being a little agitated by that or, or, or feeling frustrated Uh, and, and I know it's God's time and, and I know all that, but the, the human part of me felt, felt like, you know, I've had Christians in the past who've told me you need to believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. I just wondered, would it have been different if they would have said, and there's evidence to believe what Mm -hmm. happened in the Bible. Uh, and so, no, I just, I just thought this was what Christians did. Mm -hmm. I, I, Mm -hmm. it wasn't at first it wasn't, I'm doing apologetics. It wasn't that it was just, wow, this is exciting. And I
0: want to talk to other
1: people about
0: it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fast forwarding a bit when we met back in, say 2007 on the internet, mm-hmm. you know, you were blogging and at, at TruthBomb.blogspot.com doing truth <laughs> bomb you, apologetics. You. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's been going strong for a while. How did that uh, get started? How did Truth Bomb come about? And um, the different ministries at the church that you churches that you've been with and talk a bit about what your experience has been in doing apologetics. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I, I first of all, I
1: I was very blessed with almost every pastor I've sat under has been very open to apologetics and even letting me share apologetics from the pulpit, you know, apologetic oriented sermons. The way that Truth Bomb started is is kind of funny. I I be, I got in a habit of writing letters to the editor in our local paper, and there was this skeptic who was a he was a philosophy professor here in the area, and his name was Alan Powell. I think since then he's passed, and he would write these letters to the editor that were you know anti Christian or. Uh, sometimes pro-atheism, however you wanted to, depending on the nature of the letter. And I just thought, honestly, and this isn't my reaction to all atheist writing, and you know that and listeners know that, but I just thought they were awful. And, And here I was, somebody who had only been reading this stuff for a few years, and I just read them and thought, has this guy read anything on recent arguments for the existence of God or the resurrection? They were just awful. So I started writing and it became a thing that he and I were going back and forth in the local paper and people at church would talk to me about it. And uh, my family would talk to me. Oh, I saw you were going back and forth with Alan Powell again, You going back and forth with Alan again or whatever. And it became kind of a funny thing in my circle anyway. So one day I was in the pastor's office and we were talking about my direction and what I should do with apologetics and, and things like that. Cause it was clearly a passion of mine. And he said, you know, I just, I think it's important what you're doing. He said with the letters to the editor, he said, but, but do you really want to just be the, the guy who always writes letters to the editor and to the, to the local paper? And, and he wasn't trying to say, stop doing that. He was just saying, that's only going to reach a certain amount of people. And so he recommended starting a blog and it was a, initially just supposed to be a blog for the church where they could find arguments for the existence of God and ways to defend their faith and whatnot. And he said to me in that discussion, sometimes when you keep going back and forth with him, you're kind of just feeding feeding the fire. Jesus didn't always do that. He said, sometimes Jesus just dropped the truth bomb and kept going. And I loved that that idea of, of Jesus dropping a truth bomb. And so what started out as FCF apologetics, which was faith Christian fellowship turned into truth bomb apologetics. And the blog is going through so many different, you know, like I said, it started out as solely geared toward that church I was at, then it turned into just stuff I was doing. And now it's kind of a mixture of stuff. I do resources, our podcasts. And so it's going through many different Changes. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started. And it's been a,
0: it's been a great learning experience. I'm going to ask you a question and don't be shy. Uh, What's Uh your biggest strength as an apologist? Like what, what areas, what's your areas of of interest and strength? Hmm.
1: Well, I'll start out with my, uh, I I feel like definitely a, a big area of interest for me would be the reliability of the New Testament and the resurrection. Those are two very big interests for me. As, as far as what my strengths are, and I, I don't know that I have a specific one, but I think I'm pretty good at navigating through conversations in a non-threatening way, and I largely attribute that to uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. And Since reading that book, it's really allowed me to know when to go on the offensive, know when to ask questions to gain more information. Uh, know when to challenge the person that I'm in a conversation with, but do so in a way that is non-confrontational. Also, I would say maybe another strength is equipping, I think, teaching the body of Christ uh, apologetics in a way mm-hmm. that, as as some have said, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. Because sometimes one of the challenges of apologetics that I've gotten from people ever since I've you know been engaged in it is, well, I've tried to read this author, or I've tried to listen to this and it's just so over my head. And so I've always kind of gone with that idea of what if I take, for example, the, what if I take, say the Kalam cosmological argument, and I'm able to break it down in a way that an elementary age kid can understand it. If I'm able to do that, then everybody can kind of understand it and own it. And honestly, Mm -hmm. and this is not, this is, this is going to sound snob, this could sound snobby, but I don't think it is. Most people aren't sitting around reading this stuff all the time. They're not. Most people aren't sitting around and reading about the origin of the universe, fine tuning the moral argument. Uh, There are a lot of people who are, but I'm saying people you rub elbows every day with in the workplace. Sometimes if you can just give them a couple things to think about, as Kokel says, put a stone in their shoe, that is good enough to to hopefully promote another conversation down Mm. the road. And so I think that because I am an elementary school teacher and because I'm of average intelligence for sure, that I think it's been, uh, I've been pretty good at being able to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And I also want to say that I give credit to Danielle for that, my wife, because the first couple of times I preached, having never preached, not trained, no idea what a sermon supposed to be nothing. You know, she politely said to me a couple of times, Chad, it's, it's really great. And here's what I liked that you did. She said, but unfortunately, when you use these words, most people have no idea what you're talking about. And so that was very helpful as well. And, and I wasn't using the words because I was super smart. It was just, I was kind of speaking the lingo, but like I said, mm-hmm. unless you're reading it all the time, you don't know the lingo. And, yeah. uh, I didn't know the lingo and only know mm. it now because I read and get to do this great podcast with you. So anyway, hope that kind of answers it. But yeah, I would say my strength is, is having thoughtful conversations and I give, like I said, credit to um, Greg Kokel. And I'd also, now that I think about it would give credit to you because you taught me a lot about that. And then also being able to take difficult concepts and put them in a way that people can, can understand them.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh... I remember you're posting various times, uh, sermons that, that you have done that were apologetic oriented. And I listened to them and I thought, wow, man, <laughs> that's just well done, you know, uh, Thanks. very uh, accessible. And basically I, what I get from that is not only do you need to know your subject, but you need to know your audience and, and be able to yes. like speak their language, sort of translate it for them. That's, that's a great thing to learn from.
1: Yeah. And I would say when I, when I started in this
0: adventure, I'll
1: call it, I had no, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I just thought about presenting the content, presenting the content. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about who am I presenting the content to. And as I said, my wife was instrumental in kind of helping me think more about that.
0: In this whole little apologetics adventure that we both are on, (laughs) you know, there's ups and downs and, um, challenges, whether it's content or, you know, apologetics challenges or just um, personal challenges. Talk about an area that you find to be a challenge studying apologetics.
1: Yeah, I'm going to share two, actually, uh, if that's okay. The the first one would be consistent prayer. I go Mm -hmm. through periods where I'm I'm praying, I'm writing in my prayer journal, or I'm sitting before the Lord and, and just praying through scriptures and things like that. And and sometimes i do tend to get discouraged if i don't see answers um especially with some health issues i've had for like past 6 years sometimes it seems like just honestly that god has been somewhat silent in a sense and i that that doesn't make me doubt whether or not he's there or that he has reasons but uh, and sometimes i get discouraged and have gone through periods of um where it's harder to pray and I get out of the habit. And so I think consistent prayer is something that I have struggled with. And I think another area is being content. Hmm. When I first became a Christian and I got into apologetics, I had a lot of people say to me things like, I don't know, things along the lines of, wow, God's going to do amazing things with you. You know, just, just things like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s at this point. You're not grounded enough. At least I wasn't grounded enough to know that those were nice things to say, but I believed them. You know, mm-hmm. I really thought, like, God's going to do something amazing with me. Here I am now 46 years old, and I'm still an elementary school teacher, and I have gotten to do great things, but I'm not doing things, you know, that a lot of people would look at as, like, the big apologists do. And so I think sometimes seeing what other people do and then struggling with the fact that God why aren't you doing more with me? Why why don't I get to do this full time, uh, you know, and and things like that and I know that you know listeners might be hearing that and and that might speak to my lack of maturity and and I'm growing of course, but but yeah, those those are a couple of things I struggle with and at my most uh lucid times I'm able to realize that God has me right where he wants me and he's creating me to be the the Chad Gross he wants me to be. But then at other times, I struggle with being content and and just think, why, you know, why can't I retire and do apologetics full time
0: And, and things like that? Of one of the things you said there about consistent prayer, I think that, you know, in the different times we've talked and also had conversations with other people who are apologists in one realm or another, it tends Mm. to be a similar sort of hang up where if you can get focused on the intellectual side of things, you can easily neglect prayer. No, I think that anybody can do that. It doesn't have to be intellectual. You could just be caught up in watching Netflix or something or surfing the (laughs) web and just lazy or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I think that what resonates with me is the idea of say the reliability of the new Testament. That's really excites me in a intellectual and spiritual way and i can mistake that excitement about something you know new testament or bible and think that i'm somehow fed by that or closer to jesus or somehow th- that's no replacement for holiness or prayerfulness <laughs> you know right and so i think that's an easy sort of pitfall we've talked about pitfalls many times but uh yes. yeah it's definitely one to watch out for but I guarantee there's no one listening to this who who won't say, oh, yeah, well, that's that's me, too, at some point, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I had a friend named
1: Ron who was an agnostic who actually came to faith after the hearing some of the arguments for the existence of God. And he also had a really powerful personal experience with God. But he used to say that to him. It makes the most sense in the world to be praying because as Christians, because Christ is our mediator, we have a direct connect to the God of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that, that always hit me like a ton of bricks of like, yeah, why aren't we praying all the time?
0: You know? So I always thought that was a powerful, kind of powerful thought, the way he put that together. Yeah. We talked about maybe some of the struggles, but I think one of your strengths is, you know, having a heart for the people that you interact with. It's very... Evident and obvious. Sometimes you'll send me messages uh, with interactions you're having with folks, and uh, obviously you're putting a lot of time and thought into your answers. And so, talk about maybe some advice you would give to others who are having ongoing conversations with friends or coworkers or family members that are about evidence or persuading them about the truth of Christianity. Are, Are there any tips that you'd give?
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think one of the things that I always keep in mind is, is that the only reason that my eyes were open to the truth of Christianity is by the, the grace of God. And so I have I, I am very convinced of that. And so I, I really don't have the the right to look down my nose at somebody because they're just, the, you know, I'm not better than them. It's just, I I think I have heard Lee Strobel say something along the lines of Christians aren't better than others, but they're just better off in the sense of where they stand with God. And I've always found that to be really helpful and that the attitude that we should have when we're coming to others is that we're like a beggar who found bread and we're just offering bread to another beggar. That should be our, our attitude you know lowly in in spirit and i think a couple things that if i could go back and talk to my younger self even though i know that would mess up the time continuum and this infernal time machine why did i even right, create it exactly but if i could without breaking you know the time continuum or destroying the universe. I, th- I think a few things I would say is that he- this sounds funny, but this is how I viewed it is humans aren't computers and you can't just put in the right input and expect to get the right output. I was naive enough to believe when I became a Christian that if I just shared this evidence with everybody, that they would just automatically become a Christian. It was just clear as crystal. I didn't realize that there was a lot more to somebody becoming a Christian than just plugging in the right answers. And uh, I, I think that we need to realize that, first of all, you know, the Holy Spirit is the only one that saves people. I think also that it, the Holy Spirit can save someone whenever he pleases. But at the same time, most of the time, it takes place over a period of time. And I think one of the things I've also learned is that the goal in one conversation, one of the goals in a conversation is should be to have another conversation. In other words, we want this Mm -hmm. to be we want these to be cordial, thoughtful discussions that people know that they can engage you on important spiritual issues and that you're going to listen to them, give them thoughtful feedback and we're walking alongside someone and we're both trying to walk toward truth. That should be our attitude. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if we are both pursuing truth, then if that's true, which I obviously believe it is, then we will both end up at Jesus. I think, again, in summary, I would say that to keep in mind that people aren't computers, you can't just put in the right input and get the The desired output. I think remembering that the goal of having one conversation is to have another conversation. And I think I would add on there that, uh, you know, it's a cliche and I know it's said a lot, but sometimes the only Bible people are going to see is your life. And so we do want to be abiding in Christ so that that fruit uh, goes forth so that
0: they can not only hear the truth of Christianity, but also see it. That's good advice, Marty. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about discipling our kids and i know it's easy for me and and anyone who has kids to say well i know i make it a lot of mistakes and i don't always get it right that is true don't even (laughs) say that we we all that's just a baseline starting point for all of us so what are some areas you say you know what i may suck at everything else but here's where i've (laughs) had a few good wins. And let me tell you, this is one thing that works for our family, Um, you know, in discipling your kids.
1: Yeah. So since you've already given that one caveat, I will not make it, but I will say that a couple successes, I think that uh, Danielle and I have had with our girls is that pretty early on in their development, we started doing a family devotion time. And I don't want to give the false pretense that uh, we nail family devotions every day because we don't. One type of devotion we do is that we just open the word and we read read through a book of the Bible and we pray uh, as we're going through it, uh, either before or after, or sometimes both, uh, depending. Other times we'll work through a book. So for example, right now we're going through Sean McDowell's Rebel Manifesto because it obviously Addresses a lot of the issues that my 14 and 15 year old daughters are going to wrestle with. And so that's one thing that I have found extremely helpful and encourage other people to do. The other thing that that I did that was really gratifying is I had a time set aside. was usually Saturday mornings. We've done this with a couple books where the girls and I just would sit down and we would have kind of a mini apologetics class. And this was something they wanted to do because we used J. Warner Wallace's cold case Christianity for kids and God's crime scene for kids. And uh, he has a program set up that has a video. Uh, The book has fill in the blanks. There's worksheets you can print off on the website. And uh, we, we have done two of those books and set aside a time for that. And so the girls have been able to learn kind of the, the basic arguments and kid friendly ways of defending the New Testament and particularly the Gospels, but then also some arguments for the existence of God. And then the third thing is, and, and I think you're good at this, is just bringing in apologetics topics into daily conversation and into films and bringing in worldview issues into discussions. And so it just becomes part of your kind of family lingo. It's, it's not something you have to plan for necessarily but that those are just typical topics that you talk about. And uh, so those, those are some areas I think that we certainly could improve in, but, but we have had some wins
0: there. That's, that's good. Listener, that ends this interview. But if you keep listening, this is all free bonus content that we would have normally <laughs> charged $49.95 for you to listen to. So if you keep listening, you're getting this content for free. Wow. You are a generous man. When I look at a podcast and I see that it's over an hour, I'm like, hmm, should I really listen to that?
1: <laughs> I know. am <laughs> you know I mean? thinking that
0: it must not be good if it, it was that long. You know exactly. what I mean? Where it really yeah. it probably is really great. We kept going because it was good. Right. Okay. So. All right, Chad. Well, sometimes um, we've had a lot of talks about the apologetics world and, you know, we see what's going on with different people, debates they do or the books they read or the tweets they tweet or, you know, things they're doing on YouTube and whatnot. And sometimes between you and me, we have conversations about, man, that didn't come across very well. Mm. You know, that argument kind of fell flat or maybe that could have been done better, you know, armchair apologetics. Right. So (laughs) I'm just wondering, uh, some things are evident where, yeah, I think things could be better in such and such an area. So are there areas that where you wish apologists would do better and how? Yeah, I,
1: I do. But at the same time, I want to say before I mention two or three that come to mind that, that that doesn't mean that I haven't fallen into them at some point and, and that could possibly happen again. But one thing that I see that I just am probably the one that's most frustrating is especially on social media, the the insulting that Christians do toward unbelievers and toward one another. Um, I think that uh, we we represent Christ, and uh, I do not want Christ to be represented as some wimp. But at the same time, if you read through the Gospels, there was a kindness in his approach, and the people that he was most aggressive toward were religious people, if you notice as you read through the Gospels. But I, I see believers interacting with unbelievers and, and getting in insults and and being very unkind and very uncharitable. And uh, as I said before, we, you know, we're just uh, beggars who found bread and we're trying to offer bread to other people. And I think that should be reflected in our interactions. I don't see any place for that. And I think I have in the past, uh, thankfully, by the grace of God, not too often, but uh, I can think of two or three times where I crossed a line and and um, I we need to be humble enough to admit that and apologize to someone if we do do that. But the first all is there's just no place for insults. And secondly, dividing publicly. And what I mean by that is, 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 you know, whether it be the how old the earth is or your eschatology view or your view, you know, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Molinist, uh, I think those are fruitful debates. I think that they help us to understand our Bibles better and to make us better thinkers when we discuss them. But I just think that publicly insulting or or going after somebody who has a different view than us uh, just gives something for the skeptic to point at and say, look at you Christians, you know, Christ said that you they'll know that you're my follower by how you love one another. And that's in direct contradiction with that. And I think you and I can have Passionate disagreements on some of those secondary topics, but it never needs to devolve into insults or me bashing you publicly or uh, making a YouTube video where I insult your intellect or belittle whether or not you even believe what you claim to believe and to go down those roads that are just unnecessary. So the third thing I would just say is we just I think sometimes the line between building Christ's kingdom and brand building can get blurred. And so I think we just need to make sure that our intentions in our ministry always remains, as I said, building his kingdom and making sure that that is first and foremost, rather than making sure that we're able to build our brand, because that can always be a constant temptation, especially in the, the era of social media, where it, it's easy to make us the face of the ministry instead of uh, Jesus. And I think that's why it's so wise for people like Jay Warner Wallace, who he calls his ministry cold case Christianity. And he has even gone on record as saying, I refuse to put my, my name on it because I don't want it to be about me. And, uh, I don't want it to be centered on me, not criticizing people who do that, but Mm -hmm. I do think it's wise. Yeah,
0: That reminds me, our bobbleheads will be ready for our listeners to purchase at the turn of the year, just in time for Christmas. Your Chad Gross shirt does look good, though. I will say that. It looks really good on you. Are you going to call? It's got Chad Gross under there. All right. So we talked about maybe a few pitfalls. Personally, we've talked, uh, you know, that we could fall into. We talked about discipleship a bit, things that we as apologists could do better at sometimes. One area I would like you to speak to is online conversations. That's something that you mentioned during the, you know, what could we do better? One thing that tends to get out of hand with online conversations sometimes that uh, you end up putting a lot of time and energy into them, and sometimes they can turn negative or take quite a bit of attention. How do you not allow online conversations to get out of hand?
1: That That's a great question. I You know, for a fact that when I first began engaging on in online conversations that I did quite let them get out of hand and I put entirely too much time into them, almost to the point of it being somewhat of a uh, obsession. And uh, you, through coaching me a good bit, uh, helped me to start to begin to think about things like staying on one topic instead of trying to answer six or seven different threads of a of a conversation to zero in on what is the main thing what what is the most important thing to Address And so I think that is helpful. I also think asking questions to assess the person's intentions mm. is really helpful. Uh, for example, I know that Frank Turek is fond of asking the question, if, if I could give you evidence that Christianity was true, would you be willing to become a Christian? Now, that might not be the exact question, but questions along those lines. So you're actually assessing the intentions of the person that you're talking with. Also being, being wise enough to see how the person responds if they ask a question and you provide them with evidence and it just seems like they're skipping from one topic to one topic to one topic. Do they really want answers or, or are they really just interested in shooting holes in what you believe? And then finally, I think that the conversation needs to remain cordial and if the conversation begins to devolve, if the conversation begins to become contentious or heated, I think that you are not going to do that person any good. And you are certainly going to regret engaging or continuing in that conversation. In most cases, it is really difficult to reason with somebody who's behaving behaving irrationally. And it's also very difficult to be rational when you have irrational emotions going on, such as being upset and whatnot. And then the final thing that I think I'd like to say in online conversations is that you have every right to give what time you have available to the the people that you're engaging with. They have no right to your time, And you should not feel guilty if you feel like you've given them a couple answers or even given them a resource or said, hey, check out this book. I know that so and so really addresses that or this is a great podcast or a debate that addresses this topic. And if they want to guilt you into, I've, I've gotten things when I've done that, such as, oh, look at the Christian running away. Aren't you supposed to care about my soul and things like that? It, I mean, obviously, I care about their soul or I wouldn't have caged in the conversation in the first place. But at the same time, I have a wife. I have children. I have a job. I have a house to take care of. I have other pursuits that I'm involved in, and I don't owe them 100 percent of you know, of time and attention, especially when there's so many resources available online for people who sincerely want answers or want to investigate a topic more in depth. And so I think those are some of the things to keep in mind. But I think the most important one for me is just learning that uh, some of the most important ones is just learning that trying to keep the conversation going. On one topic, and and and, ma- and not moving on to another one until we've come to some type of agreement, or even just agreed to disagree. But I feel like I've been able to address it um, sufficiently. Also being aware that if it, if it becomes insulting or contentious, that I'm not going to do any good in the conversation and it's not going to do the other person any good. And then also realizing that I have a boundary of what time I'm willing to give. And if I'm offering resources and thoughts that I am not obligated to give any more time
0: to somebody than I'm able to. Mm, Good insights. Uh, Earlier, I mentioned how I could tell from your talks at church that you're able to sort of translate the bigger topics into something that's more accessible or cookies on the bottom shelf. Maybe that comes from your gifting as a teacher. I don't know. Uh, But uh, Hmm. I wonder, do you think that there are certain things that from your experience teaching and dealing with young people on a daily basis, uh, basically, Hmm. is there any sort of things that you think actually translate over and help you to explain ideas in a better way?
1: I think that the the main thing that I take away from teaching elementary school that is helpful is is kind of the the idea of having an objective in a conversation, also having a couple ways to make my point and then summarizing my mm. point. And then also also applying that to their points. So for example, I'm trying to ascertain what's their objective, what what are they trying to accomplish in the conversation. How are they trying to accomplish that? And then I trying to offer a conclusion to them to say, okay, if I understand what you're saying correctly, Mm -hmm. and that's my way of offering kind of a conclusion. And I think that kind of outline helps me present things in a way that's understandable, but it also helps me, it gives me kind of a grid to work through when I'm listening to somebody else, especially because some people speak differently. Some people are very organized and methodical in the way they talk. Other people tell a lot of stories, and and they're they're kind of all over the map. And uh, I think both ways actually can be effective. But um, if regardless of the style and somebody's talking, if I'm kind of following that outline of okay, what what is their actual objective or what is their actual point? Okay, what how are they actually making that point? And then kind of saying, okay, so if I understand you correctly, here's what you're saying. Here's why you think it. Is that correct? And, and feeding that back to them can be profitable. And then also when I'm presenting my own points, following that objective, you know, here's kind of why I think it. And here's kind of a concluding statement can also
0: be helpful. Mm-hmm. Good points. If you could spend a year uh, learning under three different teachers, so your apologetic senseis, who do you think you would Ooh. choose? And then uh, tell me why.
1: Wow. Only three. Okay, so I think I think I've got it. I think. there's a couple of people here that I could do honorably mentioned. You know, honorably mentioned. Oh, okay, but okay. I'm just gonna yeah. go with three. Yeah, I'm just gonna go with three. Uh the first person would be Kenneth Samples. I, I think that Kenneth and the reason why is because some of what we've touched on in the podcast, I, I think he has the market cornered on a kind, fair approach. And uh I I would want to learn more. Um, of that way. I also think his knowledge in church history would be invaluable as far as understanding the different critical thinkers and important figures in in the history of the church. And uh, I would love to learn more about that and how they connect and the impact they've had. And then also, of course, this is not going to surprise you or listeners of the podcast, but just his grasp on logic and how to apply it to his faith uh, would be invaluable I would also say another person I would want to learn from is, is William Lane Craig. And uh, I, I'm i sure, of course, people would assume, well, yeah, he wants to learn more about the, the Kalam and and those things. And and that's certainly true. I would want to learn the arguments. But also William Lane Craig is, to my knowledge, one of the most disciplined people mm, yeah. that I'm aware of. I, I remember an, an unbeliever years ago, followed him around for a few days and wrote an article about Craig's. Discipline and uh, I would want to learn that from Craig. I I would want to learn just you know spiritual disciplines, but also just how to live well and use time wisely. I think that would be extremely beneficial, but also, of course, I would love to learn more about some of the arguments that he defends. And uh, um, and then finally, I think Sean McDowell. And uh, Sean McDowell because he teaches a biola and I think I would get to dig into all the, the topics that I love to to dig into. But also Sean just has such a great way of of being in the world and being aware of pop culture and all of those things, but at the same time remaining true to Christ. He's in the world, but not of the world. And I know of uh, you know, few thinkers that are able to reach across the aisle and and uh he has had um dialogues with atheists and or people who are um, pro-homosexual christian position and uh all of those types of things and he's just does so with such uh winsomeness and thoughtfulness but yet i think really sound arguments i think he's fair and uh yeah so i i think those would be the the three guys that come to mind but i am gonna have to tack one more on and Mm -hmm. it'll be really fast I would love to study under David Baggett oh, because man. I yeah. love his, his version of the moral yeah. argument. And so the, and and I want to learn more about that argument and the, I mean, I know it and uh, the, the general outline of it and things like that. Uh, but I would love to study under him and uh, see how his argument interacts with counter arguments and things like that. So those would be the people that come to mind. There's, I mean, literally two or three going through my head right now that I didn't oh. mention.
0: But again, that could go they could go on forever. Well, Chad, it's been a great conversation. Uh, we have a lot of conversations yeah, this was off- fun. offline, but this was uh, different and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I would just end by saying, you can be my wingman any day. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you have too. And if you have, send us a message, podcast at apologetics315.com. Thanks again for listening. See you later. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetic stuff over at TruthBomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening you <laughs>